So now we can go to the John 9 passage, and I'm excited to be there with y'all. And uh, going through this wonderful gospel, my first time teaching through John. I've taught the other gospels, and, and um, somehow just never was uh, there in John, and now I'm thrilled to be teaching it, but I thought it would be just kind of a nice, easy gospel to be going through, just like lovey-dovey, lovey-dovey all the time. And uh, it's, it's deep, it's thick, it's rich, and it's, man, it takes a lot to uh, dig in, but it's exciting, and it is so full of life, and uh, I'm, I've been loving going through it. But you know, John chapter 9 is no exception on just what would seem like a nice little sweet story is actually, um, you know, it's just full of depth that hits home and reveals the hearts of us who would would read it. And so um, if you'll stand with me, we're going to actually read the whole story here together before we get into it. By that, I mean, I'll read it and you can follow along. We've We've messed up on that before. We got like six different translations and one really loud guy in the back and you know who you are, Jacob Hartfield. Okay. Uh, Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth and his disciples asked him saying, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore, they said to him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Then they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. When the Pharisees also asked him again how he'd received his sight, he said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received sight until they called the parents of him who'd received his sight, of him who had received his sight. And they asked them saying is this your son who do you say was born blind how then does he now see his parents answered them and said we know that this is our son and that he was born blind but by what means he now sees we do not know or who opened his eyes we do not know he is of age ask him he will speak for himself his parents said these things because they feared the jews for the jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the christ he would be put out of the synagogue 
Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know what God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he's from, yet he's opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone's a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it's been unheard of when anyone's opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And when he'd found him, he said to him, do you believe in the son of God? He answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and it is he who's talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I've come into the world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, are we blind also? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Probably a big surprise to you that the title of today's sermon is Was blind, but now I see, right? Was blind, but now I see the words of John Newton. Of course, he's not referencing some physical ailment that he had, uh, but he's referencing John chapter 9. This man who was born blind, who was begging. Some have titled this message, Blind from Birth. Now, I can't imagine being born blind, and I don't know if it would be worse to maybe lose the ability to see, to have once seen and then have lost your sight. One moment, everything is bright and clear. The next moment, you're in complete darkness, but... We're introduced to a guy here in John chapter 9 that's only known darkness, has been born blind. One guy titled this section of scripture, and I think it's very fitting, and kind of the conclusion to the chapter that Jesus was speaking forth really undergirds it, but it was D.A. Carson who called it the sight of the blind and the blindness of the sighted. That's not trying to be cute. It's actually, I think, the main point of John chapter 9. The sight of the blind and the blindness of the sighted. It's here in John 9 where we have a main idea that only Jesus, who calls himself the light of the world, has the power to give sight to the blind. Now, in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, 
we have what would be called the key verse of the book of John. It's in verse 31 where the key verse is, but it tells us what the purpose of this gospel, this book is about. And so that informs all of the stories and all of the narratives and all of the, uh, all of the discussions and everything is that John records is leading to this purpose. Now, if you'll just look at verse 31 and then we'll hop to verse 30, but it, it says that, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. All right, now, just before that, it says that truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So here we're in this great chapter, this great section, this you know, wonderful you know, story, good story, true story. And, and it's, man, it makes our hearts kind of warm and there's some cool stuff that happens and there's a little bit of comedy, you know. I heard you guys chuckling, you know. There's a little bit of humor, there's a little bit of wit. And it's fun. It's a good chapter to read. It's, it's just uplifting, right? It's encouraging. But there were many other miracles that Jesus did. And for some reason, John selects, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, this story here of the blind man and his healing and then the dialogue and the conversation with the Pharisees. And the reason that this was put in there instead of many of the other signs that John will say later on in the next chapter, John 21, that all of the books in the whole world could not contain all of the things that Jesus said and did. That's a lot, in case you're wondering, right? I know a lot of you are readers, but you'd never finish those books, okay? One day, maybe for heaven, just eternity, we're just gonna be thinking and considering all the wonderful things that Jesus did. And, uh, and so, and yet this was selected for us to even study today in 2021 Prineville for a purpose that hearing this story, we would believe that Jesus is the son of God. And when we enter into faith in that truth, we would have life in his name. We would have eternal life. And so don't miss the main point of this story. This story is to foster in us belief and life, just as it did the blind man who, when finally seeing the son of man, who's also the son of God, fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man, son of God and son of man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the savior of the world, he believed in him, and it was with an exclamation point that we read it. Lord, I believe. <clears throat> Sorry, voice crack. Lord, I believe. is what. That's really more how the original language conveys it. Uh, runs in the family, if you remember Russell at the fasting night. <laughs> yeah. He's 14. Give him a break. Okay. 40 and 14. Still voices cracking around here. Okay. Uh, but it's to foster belief. When we trust in Jesus, when we rest in Jesus, when we lay down all of our just presuppositions and all of our bents and all of our wants and all of our desires and all of our pedigree and prerogative, and we just come and say, Jesus, you are true, you are right, yesterday, today, and forever, and I just say yes and amen to all that you are. Push that into me, Lord. I believe then by believing today, you will have life in his name. 
And so we start in verse 1 of John chapter 9. It says, now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. This is mentioned a couple times in this chapter. And it is with, as many uh, commentaries said, a signal that human beings are blind from birth. And so as you read this, I encourage you not to kind of put this man in the story kind of over there like, oh, what a pity. That's him, and I'm over here, and I got 20-20 vision, you know. And, and, but rather to realize you're that man, okay? You are the man who has been blind from birth, but in a spiritual sense. And just as for this man, without a miracle that would come from outside of himself, he would remain in that helpless, hopeless condition for the rest of his life. Kind of wallowing in poverty and and begging and missing out on all of the beauty that God has for us. Just yesterday, my uh, four-year-old, or I guess he's six years old now, my son Titus, we were driving along, you know, and he's just like, hey, dad, why did God invent colors, you know? I'm like, oh, um, you know, I like that question better than what is fire? Because <laughs> with fire, I got to get into all the science that I don't know. I'm like, well, there's a fuel and a combustion. And what's fuel? Well, the fuel, then the com- how does the combustion, which came first? The I don't know, son, you know, colors. Now that's up my alley, you know. It's like you take the red one and you mix it with the blue one and it makes purple, you know. And uh, teaching him all about primaries, right? But, you know, I was like, man. Son, I, I don't know, I think we can enjoy his creation when we see his colors. And could you imagine a life without colors? I mean, how boring and bland would that be, you know? And, and, uh, and, and just think of all that this man has missed out. His entire life not seeing people and not seeing creation and not seeing colors and enjoying that sense. His condition was such that without help outside of himself, he was destined to live in darkness for the rest of his life. Now, if you transfer that to yourself, who you and and me also, we were born spiritually blind from birth. And without help from outside of ourselves, namely Jesus Christ, we would remain in our blind and hopeless, helpless without life and without hope in this world condition for eternity. Actually, it's, it's, it's even sadder because it would be beyond our 60, 70 years of life and it would go through eternity that we would be without life and without hope. And as Jesus and his disciples see this blind man, they, they ask saying, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? And so the disciples, like many Palestinian Jews of their day, believed that sin and suffering were intimately connected. Now, in one sense, that's true. When you go back to the Garden of Eden and you realize that through one man's sin, death and suffering entered into the world. And so you can enter in kind of and fill in the blank all of the suffering and sinful things that come to your mind, Uh, things that you've experienced, the loss of a loved one, divorce warfare, uh, you know, bitter personalities, anger towards one another, bankruptcy, poverty, hunger, and thirst. And I mean, you can just make that list and you, and you have things that 
they're right in your heart. You realize these things have hurt, these things have wounded, these things have actually gotten me to wonder how a good God could do this to humanity. And, and when you think about those things, there is a truth in some sense that it all is connected to one man's sin and even our sin uh, corporately and individually. And yet in another sense, there is a lack of truth in that it's just because in every sense you sinned or one person close to you sinned and therefore that is just, that's the reason you have that cancer. That's the reason you have that uh, speech impediment, or that's that reason you're blind, or whatever it may be. Uh, Rabbi Ami said, there is no death without sin, and there's no suffering without iniquity. And so, uh, in one sense, that's true, and yet it's not always the case that it was because of your specific iniquity that you are in this place. And so, it wasn't just because of this blind man's sin, or even the sin of his parents, that he was in this place. Now, we know that he was blind from birth. And so the Jews actually believed that, and there was a little superstition involved in it, that you could actually sin prenatally in the womb. And uh, I mean, just think of all the sins that come when you're in the womb and as a baby, you're like, you know, and again, truth, I was born in sin. However, at the same time, there wasn't the action yet. And so, um, and so there's just, you know, kind of an innocent question, but Many people go beyond biblical evidence, whether old or new, that, uh, that there's some sort of a curse upon you just because of a single thing that you did. Now, the Bible doesn't necessarily give us a foolproof mathematical answer as to you know, how suffering affects us and why we have a specific issue in our life. Yet it does deal with it probably better and in the best way that anyone has any answer for it. And, and that is that sin entered the world through our great, great, great grandfather, Adam. And we've inherited this sinful nature, this sinful condition. We have had imputative sin. That's an accounting term. Go get your taxes done, guys. It's tax season. My wife's a CPA. She has a business. Okay, just kidding. We're not going to talk about that right now. LindsayRogersCPA at gmail.com. Anyways, um, just a quick little plug there. Uh, just kidding. She's full. Um, so we have had accounting happen to us where the sin of our forefather, Adam, was put into our account and we received that sinful nature. And then to make matters worth, we said, worse, we said, I agree with Grandpa Adam. I'm going to keep doing that. And so then we heap it upon ourselves in agreement. And so then we ourselves willingly bring that upon ourselves as well. So both inherently and imputatively and with our own actions, we are just filling up our account with sin and death and illness and all kinds of things within the world come through that. But the good news is through the gospel, God deals with this problem of suffering and that he doesn't stay disconnected from it, but he comes into this world of suffering. He takes on flesh and he suffers himself. The Bible doesn't give us a God on a deck chair drinking lemonade. He gives us a God who came and dealt with the problem, taking it upon himself. He knows what you're going through. He's been tempted in the way that you've been tempted. And he's taken the punishment for sin upon himself that if any one of you would believe on that action that he did, 
you would not perish and eternally have the consequences of this sin upon you, but you would have everlasting life, freedom from the bondage of sin, a new nature and a new hope, both in this life and the next. And that is good news. Amen. Amen. And so the Bible gives us an answer towards the issue of suffering. If evolution is true, then all of the suffering of this world, but also all of the good things and all of the rejoicing is just the matter of random chance. But Christianity introduces us to the source of the problem and the God who deals with the problem in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we look at this man who's born blind, who did this sin? And the answer is really, well, it's this sinful condition. It's the sin of the world. It's the fallen condition of humanity. But Jesus is going to give us the answer. Verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Jesus says a similar thing in, when Lazarus was ill in John eleven four. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So this blindness is not the result of a parent's sin or prenatal sin. And, and, you know, there was this superstition or this understanding among Jews through the rabbi's teachings that if a woman went to an idol's temple and worshipped while she was pregnant, that sin was put upon the baby, and then the baby would have consequences of sin as well. But Jesus says it wasn't the parents, and it wasn't this, this man who was a baby once who had the effects of this. It was neither or neither. I don't know what's the right one there, neither or neither. You figured it out, okay? Got a lot of homeschool moms. You just write it down and talk to me later about it, okay? But man, think about all the times this little blind boy baby would ask his mom, mom, why am I blind? Why can't I see? Why can all the other kids see and I can't see? And, you know, we've all been in similar situations where we're trying to give an answer to our kid. Like, oh, honey, you know, and, and she may, have, you know, being a Jewish mother, she may even have had a similar answer like, oh, honey, just God's going to do something in you someday, baby boy, you know, and just, you know, just giving some hope and giving some help or, you know, hopefully there was some kind of encouragement like that going on. But Jesus explains it in depth that it's because God wants to work in and through even this, even in suffering, even in pain, God is working. God is working and he is moving and in his sovereignty, we can hope and we can trust in this. Matthew Carter said, this man was born blind so Jesus could teach the profound truth of spiritual blindness and reveal himself as the light of the world. Man, I just want to thank that man. Thank you, man, for being blind and going through all that you went through so that you could be the illustration in the scripture of what I am like without Jesus. Thank you for just enduring that so that Jesus could come and heal you and show me that I am you and you are me, but I'm spiritually blind and just as much in need of a rescuer and just as much in need of hope in this world. It was Trench that said, we must suppose that every sufferer will in the long run be made aware of his share in promoting that advance. Though today he suffer blindly, little conscience of his privilege. And we don't have the verse for you up there, but it just reminds me of a Romans chapter 8 memory verse. 
where Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. And if you're going through suffering right now, you're going through something that's just like, man, I'd rather be blind right now. I'd rather just be begging and sitting under a palm tree in Israel somewhere and just be away from him or her or be away from this situation or out of this struggle or away from this cancer or away from this disease. And you just need to be reminded of the hope that's in Jesus, that he uses suffering. He uses it. There's no other God that can do that. No other God that does that. No other God claims that. This is our God, everybody, the one and true. And he says, you know what? Suffering and death will not have the final word. And God is able to use our pain and our suffering and even our persecution and even, our, even the, the results of our sin. The years that the locusts have eaten, he's able to restore, the book of Genesis tells us. He allows suffering in his sovereignty so that the, the word of God might be glorified and so the work of God might be accomplished. Just this week, uh, I was out at the McKinnon farm and my kids were kind of riding around on motorcycles and I was trying to put shoes on a horse and Tatum, my little four-year-old girl, gets on her little princess dirt bike, you know, and she starts, it's a pedal bike and she just goes tearing off and there's motorcycles going all around and she's on her pedal bike. <laughs> You know, and I just let him go, let him go play, you know, and and next thing I know, I just hear this. And if you know Tatum, nothing's wrong. (laughs) You know, I was talking with Juan and I'm like, he's like, what's wrong with your daughter? And I'm like, eh, just same stuff as always, buddy. And, and Lainey scooped Tatum up, put her on this little motorcycle and came running over to us and, you know i'm like eh, it's just pretty normal so anyways Juan, tell me about you know and, and he's like man she doesn't look good you know and as she gets closer oh she had blood all over her face and a goose egg and you'll see her today she's just big old scrape and scab and and so just casey and mark and like trying to console her and just shh, just stop screaming you know and <laughs> dab that and and she's okay thanks for asking you know because just <laughs> laughing at her She's doing well. It's healing up, actually. Try medical-grade honey. That stuff is amazing. It tastes delicious. Okay, so, but, you know, as we're trying to dab her and help her, and she's just like, I hate this day. I hate this day. Why did we even come out here, you know? And I'm just like, I don't know, honey. Um, kind of wonder. Okay, no. Uh, but, you know, I love, my mom always said, you know what, with Jesus... There are no bad days. With Jesus, there's no full bad days, right? I'm like, but we got to be out here with our friends, and you're riding your bike, and you got to pet Rio, and kids are riding motor, and we get to, see, you know, and, and like, you can't, you know, you hate this moment, and it hurts so bad. But with Jesus, man, he's in the process of redeeming it. So look up, redemption is here. And, and at the very least, it causes us, as Romans 8 says, to crane our neck. And to look for the day that Jesus will return. Because he's come and he has dealt with the problem of sin, suffering, and death. He is dealing with the problem of sin, suffering, and death. And one day we'll be just totally out of it. It will have been completely dealt with. And we will see him face to face and know him just as we are known. And there will be no more tears and no more pain and no more suffering. And no more, I hate this day. 
And so Jesus goes on to say in verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And so Jesus has already said in John chapter 8, I'm the light of the world and I'm a worker. And throughout the gospel of John, that's something that we've seen, that Jesus is a worker. He's always about the Father's business. That is doing the Father's will and working works that will cause people to believe in him. That people would do their work. And that work is simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And so Jesus is in the, in the world. It's a special time. It's this concentrated moment in human history. This 33 year period where Jesus is in the world. And it is just like that flash of light there in the world. That is just especially special. Of course, he'll be ascended into heaven and he'll send the Holy Spirit and he'll make us Christians, little Christ running around the world doing his business again. But there was this special moment when he was working and there was this special moment of light. And so he is doing special works of light. When he said these things, verse six, he spat on the ground and made clay with saliva. If any of you are ever told by your mom to stop spitting, just say, hey, what would Jesus do? Okay. Respectfully, of course. I love this verse. You know, it's, it's Prineville to the core, right? Like, thank you, Jesus, for being a country boy, okay? I mean, he could have done paper mache or something like that or some sort of yarn object. No one wants to see that, a wind catcher of some... No. All the way, spit and dirt, okay? Probably had a John Deere hat on when he did it, okay? I like what Matt Carter said, and I quote, he bends over and he makes little mud balls, okay? Jesus has just declared that he's the light of the world, and he now proceeds to illustrate that point by giving light to a man who's been born blind. Now, something beautiful that we see twice in this chapter is Jesus takes the initiative. The blind man didn't say anything. Jesus just went for it. Just makes this, these, these uh, mud balls, for lack of a better word. <laughs> and using saliva, he calls to our mind the healing of the deaf and dumb man at the Decapolis in Mark chapter 7. The blind man at Bethsaida in Mark chapter 8. And of course, it's a little bit strange to us, you know, the spit and the mud, and it's different. And of course, if someone came up to you and tried to do that, you, whoa, man. Okay, go for it, you know. Um, but as Barclay says, spittle, and especially the spittle of some distinguished person, was believed to possess certain curative qualities. I'm really surprised we don't have more people sitting in the front row today, because okay think about that next week okay or alfred who says the virtue of the fasting saliva in the case of disorders of the eye was well known in antiquity so jesus uses something that's that's culturally relevant to make a point that he is a special person that he's a distinguished person, that he's gone through a period of fasting. In fact, his whole life was a fast, fasting of the, from the privileges of deity as he took on flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, it, it calls to mind Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where God creates man out of the dust of the earth. And here Jesus uses this, 
dust to create a salve of some sort to bring healing to this man. Uh, Man, there's all kinds of incredible thoughts behind this. Some would say that by putting a mask on the man's eyes, he actually makes it worse blindness so that the healing seems all the more legit, similar to when Elijah on Mount Carmel dumped the altar, uh, dumped water all over the altar, just so when the fire of God came and lit it, whoa, not only did the fire come from heaven, but there was a lot of water on that, you know? And not only, whoa, this guy didn't even, you know, but man, it was darker than ever before, just before he saw. It's the compassion of the Lord as he touches this man. And there's closeness and there's intimacy as Jesus heals and reaches out and helps this man who's seen so much. And there's, there's a lot culturally that I could get into. I got a whole page of notes just culturally on what all of the mud and the spittle might have to do. I actually had something similar to this happen this week, and it was just praise the Lord. The high school group on Wednesday night sanded down the pre-K class, all the sheetrock that we've been mudding and taping and texturing. Anyone ever mud and sanded sheetrock? You know what I'm talking about? Nobody? Nobody's sheetrock? Okay, everyone with your hand up right now, keep them up because we need help this week. Um, you know who you are. We got it on video. We're going to look at everyone that raised your hand. So you know how it is, right? You sand and that fine powder just gets everywhere and goes up your nose and gives you leprosy nose hairs, you know, and, and you're, it gets in your eyes and then you like, can't blink for a few days and you're coughing and all, you know how that is. And, and so Wednesday night I get home and it's like, you know, and there's white, you know, and you're oh, gross. And, and, uh, and then Friday, it was at a branding. It was a really windy day and the dust from the cows and just getting dirt all over you and in your eyes. And so I have sheetrock dust and cow stuff uh, in my eyes. And it begins to, I woke up yesterday morning and I was like, Lord, I see men like trees. I don't know. Don't watch Ren and Stimpy, but it would be a really good, you know, if you can picture my eyes, you know, or something, okay? Just the crust, okay? And this is biblical stuff, okay? But in reverse, Jesus is like, okay, now you're going to be able to see. And don't worry, thanks for asking. I'm good today, and I can totally see. But then in verse 7, Jesus says, that's five minutes you'll never get back um, from your life. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. We have a picture of the pool of Siloam for you guys. And and, uh, I'm actually in the process of looking at putting an Israel trip together for next year. So put that in your pocket, okay? But when we go to Israel, uh, one of the things that we do is we climb through Hezekiah's tunnel that was built by King Hezekiah back in the age of the kings. It's this narrow tunnel and you go through, and it was how they got water into the city. It was also a, an escape route. You go through Hezekiah's tunnel, and you hike like about a mile or so in a tunnel like this in the water. Okay? And then you come out through this tunnel. You come out, and where are you? But the pool of Siloam. The very pool where this blind man went and washed his eyes. Now, it is a special thing that it says that it's translated sent because Jesus was the sent one. Okay, it's, it's in there for a reason. Everything's in there for a reason. And Jesus multiple times in the Gospel of John tells us that he was sent from the Father. He was sent from the Father to do the will and the works of the Father. 
And so verse 7, one of the most simple and yet profound verses at the end of verse 7, so he went and washed and came back seeing. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. The obedience of this blind man shows faith. He could have just gone back to his mat and just hung out there with those really cool suntan type glasses on, you know, tanning bed glasses, just a little cake of mud on both eyes, just ah, living the life. No, he's like, okay, this is something some even say that Jesus put the mud on there so that it required the action of go wash. Okay. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing, and this wonderful miracle occurs. A prophecy from Genesis 49 verse 10 that the scepter would not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Shiloh, also Siloam or sent until the sent one comes. And so it's this prophecy. Some would even directly connect it to this event. Uh, And to him shall be the obedience of the people. And so the power came not even from the man's obedience, not from the pool called Siloam, but from the sent one himself. It was not the combination of the clay or the saliva or the chemicals in the pool of Siloam, but from Jesus's power that this man is healed. And so Jesus healed. I want to read what Alistair Begg had to say. He said, this man's physical condition is a mirror image of the spiritual condition of you and me. It's not a very nice thing to say in polite company, but it's what the Bible has to say about us. Namely, that we are blind beggars. We're blind because we're in solidarity with Adam and Eve and their sin. We're blind because of the light that we refuse to come into. To come into the light. We'd rather stay in darkness. And Begg said, we are no more capable of causing ourselves to see spiritually than this man is able to cause himself to see physically. The healing must come from outside ourselves. And here the healing came. And so next week, we're going to pick it up. Verse 8, we're going to see the Pharisees accost uh, the blind man two separate times. They're going to confront his parents, and then they're going to confront Jesus at the end. But we'll have the worship team come on up. And as they're coming up, Thomas Watson was the 17th century preacher. And he wrote a sermon concerning man's misery as a result from the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And he wrote, the first misery is that by nature we are under the power of Satan. Before the fall, man was free, now a slave. Before the fall, he was a king on a throne. Now he's a man in fetters. And to whom is this man enslaved? To one who hates you, who is happy to continually feed on the distortion of of your thinking. Guys, this isn't a super politically correct thing to speak to you today. We don't like to hear it. We live in a culture that prefers to just be pampered and petted, to have their hair stroked and to be told what a princess they are, 
and what a prince you are. Oh, and that since birth, you've just been the most sweetest little thing, and you've never done a wrong thing in your entire life, and you grew up, and you were my honor student, and I got a bumper sticker for it. You graduated kuma sum laude, and all this different stuff, and just, you're just precious. We all think you're precious. Don't get me wrong. But the Bible says that there is none righteous. That means right. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who just seeks after God on their own. The Bible says that every one of you and myself included, on our best day, our lips have the poison of asps under them. All right? Our, our mouth is like an open tomb. And our best work and our best work of goodness on our best day is like a filthy rag before God in all of his holiness. Because we have been tainted by sin. And you need to realize that you are not a good person. The age-old question of why do bad things happen to good people is simply answered, although sometimes not super compassionately, but here it is. There are no good people. You're not a good person. You're born into sin. You're born into a sinful condition of both your ancestors and yourself included. You heaped it upon yourself. And you need to come to a place where you realize your spiritual bankruptcy. You are broke. You pull your pocket out spiritually and lint falls out. And it's worth nothing. And so you come to Jesus and you say, Nothing in my hands do I bring. Simply to the cross do I cling. Not by my works of righteousness that I've done that's won me a spot in heaven or favor with my God. But through the works of Jesus, his righteous acts. And when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's saying, blessed are you when you realize your poverty of spirit. You're poor, you're bankrupt, there's nothing in yourself, in your DNA, in your heritage, in your grandma and grandpa, and the line of Christianity that you come from. You cannot rest in your genetics or your heritage. We've been studying that in John. You cannot rest in your race. You cannot rest in the hard things that have happened to your race. You cannot rest in your political party or affiliation. You can't rest in your service to our country or that you were a boy scout or you helped a little old lady across the street, this, that, or the other. Do not rest in the works of your flesh. The book of Romans tells us by the works of the flesh, no one will be justified. By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. But by the grace of God. And so, I urge you today, come to Jesus. Come to the grace of Jesus. And the good news is, he's coming to you first. He's the initiator in this story. We're just the blind people that are sitting there, and people are talking about us. I wonder what they did, or I wonder what their family did. And Jesus is like, don't worry about that. I'm going for it. And he came and he set out with a purpose to rescue us and to free us from our spiritual blindness. But as we saw a little bit as we read ahead, and as one of our headings was in our sermon today, those who think they can see suffer from the worst form of blindness. We need to come before the Lord like John Newton in the hymn. Amazing grace. How sweet that sounds. <laughs> It saves a wretch like me.
takes humility to say that, doesn't it? Calling yourself a wretch. I'm blind from Revelation chapter 3. I'm blind. I'm miserable. I'm poor. And I'm naked. I'm a wretch. But God. But God's grace saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. I was walking in darkness. I was tripping all over the place. But now I'm found. He has found me. He's pursued me. I was blind. I was listening to the lies of the enemy. I was enslaved to sin. Everything that he'd speak into my mind, it distorted my view of everything in the world around me. It distorted my view in relationships. It distorts my view politically. It distorts my view of what sin is. I think that sin's going to end up good somehow. That doing this, it'll be all right. It distorts my worldview by making me think that, oh, you know what? For everyone, it's just going to all end up okay no matter what. But this story, and we just are getting into it, John chapter 9 tells us it's not okay for the people that thought they could see they were actually blind and they'll be condemned and so if you'll just set your things aside and we can move to prayer